Good morning. It's good to have you with us today. It's a new series, and I'm very nervous. I want to start with a question, and this question is aimed at the younger part of our church family. And the question is this. What kind of older person do you want to become? You might think, you might think that that is a little bit of a strange question, as you never think about that in your 20s. You rarely think about that in your 30s. You only occasionally think that, of that question in your 40s. However, the older you get, like me, the more you tend to ask life questions, the more you tend to ask legacy questions. When the word legacy is mentioned, many people think in terms of money or property or material possessions left to someone in a will. But in this teaching series, which is going to be for a number of weeks, actually, I want to talk about a much more important legacy than just material possessions. It is a legacy that we have received from others, but also a legacy that we are passing on to others, to our families, to our church family, to our community, and to our wider world. We are writing our legacy every day in the lives of others around us. And we need to remember that it is not what we leave for others that matters, it is what we leave in others that matters most. In fact, that's so important, I'm going to say it again. We need to remember that it's not what we leave for others that matters, it is what we leave in others that matters most. And that is the challenge of leaving a legacy. And it's better to leave a legacy which is woven in the lives of others than one which is engraved on a stone monument. So in our series, um, we are going to be looking at a number of characters from history. And um, uh, I'm going to introduce the first one in a few moments' time. And what we're going to do is this. We're going to look at these characters from history People perhaps you have heard of, might not have heard of, people perhaps who have lived hundreds of years ago. And uh, the one thing that we do know for certain is that whether we've heard of them or not heard of them, that they have affected our lives on earth in some major way. In fact, it was Benjamin Franklin, one of the founding uh, fathers of the United States, who said, if you would not want to be forgotten as soon as you're dead. Either write something worth reading or do something worth writing. I think that's a great quote, isn't it? So what we're going to do over the number of weeks is first of all we're going to have a look at some historical characters, some great Christian who has left an incredible legacy. Then we're going to look at the scriptures and we're going to see from the Bible what is it that the Bible says about the legacy that they have left? And then thirdly, we're going to ask, you, ask ourselves, week by week, what is the challenge for us today? So, 
Are you up for this? Brilliant. I wonder if you'd be so excited in week five. Okay, the first person that we are going to be looking at, and by the way, this is very, very different to probably anything that we've done before. That's why I'm feeling a little bit nervous about it this morning. The first character that we are looking at is um, William Tyndale. How many of you, for instance, how many of you have heard of William Tyndale? How many of you have not heard of William Tyndale? That's actually probably slightly more who have not heard of him. Okay. Well, for the first 10 minutes or so of this morning, I'm going to give you a little bit of a background on why this gentleman is so important to you and to me today. By the, the Middle Ages, the, uh, the church had fallen into decline and corruption in the church was rife. And there were many unbiblical practices and beliefs uh, going around in the church at that time, such as purgatory and penance and pilgrim pilgrimages, three Ps there, but also confession uh, to priests and indulgences, which were taught by the church as a means to salvation. Now, many of you will know that purgatory is a Roman Catholic uh, doctrine. It's not found in the Bible. Uh, and purgatory, purgatory teaches that a person will spend time in this place, have their sins purged, being purified, as it were, before one day getting into heaven. And purgatory is a kind of place of temporary punishment. Now, an indulgence was a payment made by a person in order that they could have this purgatory eliminate once and for all, or maybe at the very least have their time in purgatory reduced. And essentially, what was happening there in the Middle Ages church was that um, it, it was a money-making scheme, <clears throat> and it was a scandal in the church. And much of the church uh, money raised through this was actually used to build um, St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. It was a corrupt practice through and through. And uh, one of the main guys who was involved in this was a, a Dominican priest by the name of Johann Tetzel. <coughs> and he had a wonderful job uh, title. I don't know what your job titles are like, but this is a cracker. He was the Catholic Church's Grand Commissioner of Indulgences in Germany. That is some job description to stick on your CV, isn't it? And he sold these indulgences, um, which were promises to somehow be released from this, this purgatory that uh, the Catholic Church believed in. And his famous phrase was, as a coin into the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. And it was Tetzel and his selling indulgences was one of the main reasons why Martin Luther, I'm sure most of you have heard of Martin Luther, uh, he was the, uh, the German Augustinian monk who became a, um, the, the catalyst of the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century. And that he nailed those uh, famous 95 theses to the Wittenberg Castle door. And uh, 
it really started off the Protestant Reformation, and we give God thanks for that man and for what he achieved there. And if you're wondering, what am I talking about? What's this all about? Then um, I do encourage you, you know, to know a little bit of our history and to know a little bit of uh, some of these great people like Martin Luther. And even if you go onto our website, uh, Dr. Richard Massey, just a couple of years ago, did an absolutely fantastic lecture for us on Martin Luther. Do you remember that morning? I think we were all spellbound by it. The 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, and it's still there. Have a look. So this uh, selling of indulgences was really a money-making scandal. But it was more than that. It was more sinister than that. It actually gave the Roman Catholic Church in the Middle Ages the power of salvation. In, in other words, the, the church acted as a gatekeeper of those who were saved and those who were not saved and those who were going to heaven and those who were not going to heaven. So how could ordinary people um, argue against the corruption and the power of the medieval Catholic church? Well, they couldn't argue from the Bible. They couldn't say, well, you're wrong. It says in the book this. They couldn't do that at all because no one had a personal copy of the Bible. Uh, and it would have been pointless anyway because the only Bibles available were in Latin. In fact, the Catholic Church taught at that time that English wasn't a language fit for the Word of God. <coughs> and sympathisers of the English Bible were viewed as heretics and they often uh, faced severe punishment. There's one terrible story of seven people being burned at the stake. You never guess, guess what for. Seven people burned at the stake. They were burned at the stake because they taught their children the Lord's Prayer and the Ten Commandments and the Apostles' Creed in English. So these were dangerous times, they really were. Okay, we've got the context. Enter William Tyndale, born in 1494 in Slimbridge, Gloucestershire. Um, he began his studies in Oxford University in the year 1510, later moving on to Cambridge. He was a brilliant scholar and a linguist. He could speak fluently seven languages and he knew the ancient languages of Greek and Hebrew, the biblical languages. He was ordained a priest in 1522 in a Cotswold village. And this man was just driven by a compulsion to provide an English Bible to English-speaking folk who could read the scriptures for themselves so that they could find out themselves the way to salvation. Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, these words. You have been taught the holy scriptures from childhood, and they have given you the wisdom to receive salvation that comes by trusting Jesus Christ. Now, Timothy was a guy who was blessed indeed. He'd learned the scriptures at his mother's knee. But there were no scriptures to learn at any mother's knee 500 years ago in the UK. Only the very educated could read Latin and virtually no one at all. New Testament Greek. And Tyndall wasn't a shy bloke. He shared his views uh, widely and he caused a bit of a stir wherever he went and he would meet with other clergymen for dinner and they would have 
heated arguments over this subject. And on one occasion, one of the uh, clergymen said to him that it would be better to be without God's laws than the Pope's. Whoa! As you can well imagine that that absolutely appalled and infuriated Tyndale. And Tyndale's response to this uh, clergyman is well documented. Um, it's a well famous quote. <clears throat> and this is what he said. I defy the Pope and all his laws. If God spares me, I will cause the boy who drives the plough to know more of the scriptures than you. What a great answer. That really is fighting talk here. What an incredible vision to have, to have a Bible in the language of the people when there was none before. And um, news started spreading that Tyndall was this heretic who wanted to do this. So he thought it best to move to London. Maybe he could gain support uh, to write his English Bible. The problem was that he unwisely confided and requested permission to write this Bible. Um, he asked the question to the Bishop of London, um, a person called Bishop Tunstall. Now, Tunstall was a traditionalist, and um, he loathed heresy. So anyone wanting to write the Bible in English was arch enemy number one. And Tunstall made sure that Tyndall wasn't going to be able to do this. And uh, he closed all sorts of doors for him to do that. So England wasn't a safe place for his work, so he moved to Germany, never again to return to England. And for the rest of his life, he was a hunted man. And for the first two years in Germany, he went undercover and started translating the New Testament from the original Greek into English. And it caused him to be known as the most dangerous man in all of England. He worked 12 to 15 hours every day, but then he needed to find someone who was brave enough to actually publish his writings. It was one thing to write it, but you know, the publishers themselves, if they were caught, they would have been persecuted too. And uh, he found out that Cologne, the city of Cologne, was the best place um, because um, it was a city of printers. And, um, but unfortunately for William Tyndall, one of Bishop of London's acquaintances was also in Cologne at the same time getting a book published with the same printers. What an awful coincidence. And uh, one night, having had too much to drink, one of the printing staff told this man that uh, they were printing 3,000 New Testaments which were going to be secretly shipped to England. Well, you can imagine what happened next. The, the printer's workshop was raided and Tyndall managed to escape with his life and with the copies of the work that he had done, but all of the, the, the Bibles were burned to the ground. Uh, Tyndall escaped to another German city, the city of Worms, and uh, he published 6,000 copies, and they were printed and smuggled into England. Now, this wasn't taken kindly by the medieval Catholic Church, because the bishops were in uproar, they were trying to get their hands on these. And then people like um, uh, King Henry VIII's right-hand man, Sir Thomas More, yes, for you history bods, that he was absolutely livid about all this. And they tried to do away uh, with the English Bible that was being smuggled into the country. 
And um, the Bishop of London, Lord, um, uh, Bishop Tunstall, had a ceremonial burning of all the Bibles on the steps of St. Paul's Cathedral in London. The following year, the Archbishop of Canterbury went around trying to buy up all the copies that he could in order to burn them. But what happened was that Tyndale then got the money through this, the purchases, and uh, just gave him the opportunity to print better, more improved editions. 6,000 copies were printed, but only two have survived. One today is in the city of Stuttgart in Germany, and the other one is in St. Paul's Cathedral, which is a partial copy. Are you with me so far? Sorry, I'm just throwing all this history at you, and I don't tend to do this on a Sunday normally. So the English translation undermined the authority of the Roman Catholic Church. His language was simple. He wrote in short sentences. He invented words which are still with us today in our English language, like the word Passover and scapegoat. That, they came from Tyndale. And there were many, many uh, familiar phrases with us which were coined by Tyndale. For example, my brother's keeper. Knock and it shall be opened to you. Seek and ye shall find a law unto themselves, signs of the times, and so forth. And alongside Shakespeare, Tyndale was the co-creator of the modern English language from the English of the, the Middle Ages. One century later, when the translators of the Authorised Bible, or the King James Version, 1611, they debated, well, how can we translate these original languages into modern speak? And the team of translators used 85% of Tyndall's Old Testament and 74% of his new, of, of his old, sorry, 85 of his New Testament and 74% of his Old Testament, word for word. I'm nearly there on the history lesson. Tyndall then went in, into hiding uh, for many years. He was fi finally found by an Englishman um, who came to him as a friend, but he was no friend at all. His name was Henry Phillips. He was actually a spy, and uh, Henry Phillips uh, turned him over to the authorities. About a year and a half in prison, he was brought uh, to trial for heresy, uh, for believing, amongst m uh, uh, many other things, believing in the forgiveness of sins and that the mercy offered in the gospel was enough for salvation. That's what he got arrested for, by the church. <laughs> he was condemned to die on October the 6th, 1536, as a, and as an act of mercy, the person who put him on the pole um, strangled him first before his body was burned. But there were reports that the strangling didn't actually kill him and he awoke during the flames. The last prayer that he prayed was, Lord, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. And that prayer was answered in an incredible way. Three years later, in the year 1539, King Henry VIII required every parish in England to have a copy of the English Bible available in their churches to their parishioners. So, we're talking about legacy today. The legacy of William Tyndale was the English Bible. He was so passionate uh, 
about the truths of God's word to be known to men and women, boys and girls, rich and poor, educated and educated, to the ploughboy and even to the king of England. And that vision was fulfilled in part soon after his death. Now, I've been filling my mind with all of this history this week. I've been reading a, a lot of this stuff, refreshing my memory on, on some of the stuff that I, I knew from years back. And two questions came to mind. And there are two questions I want to bring to you this morning, two questions I want you to eventually take home with you today. And they are these. Firstly, do I have a passion for reading and studying the Bible? And the second question is, do I have a passion to make the Bible accessible to others? Okay. Let's deal with the first question first. Do I have a passion for reading and studying the Bible? And let me ask you a straightforward question. Would you, like Tyndale, be prepared to die for the sake of the Bible? Steve, isn't that a bit heavy? That question? Besides, how do we know what we might be given the strength to do in a given set of circumstances? And maybe none of us who have been brought up in a country which is tolerant of the Christian faith could ever imagine needing to die for any aspect of our faith. Okay, I admit, that was a tough question. That was a really, really tough question. But let me ask you another one. Would you be prepared to make significant sacrifices to get a Bible if you didn't have one? I've got many copies of Bibles. I've got some at home, some in my office, different versions of the Bible which I compare. And many of us, because we live in this country, are blessed with having Bibles at our disposal we can easily turn and read a Bible, should we wish. But there are many Christians around the world who don't possess a Bible. What kind of sacrifice might I make in order to get a Bible? Let me tell you a couple of stories. First of all, a story of a man called William McPherson. William McPherson was a man who lived in Kansas City. He was severely injured with a dynamite explosion. His face was badly disfigured. He lost his eyesight, he lost both his hands as well. Um, in, in, in fact, he was, he was just a, a new Christian and the thing that upset him most was that he wanted to read the scriptures for himself. He'd heard about a lady in England who could read Braille with her lips. So hoping to do the same, he sent for some books of the Bible in Braille, but much to his dismay, he discovered that the nerve endings in his lips had been destroyed by the explosion. But as he brought one of the braille pages to his lips, he realized that his tongue happened to touch a few of the raised characters and he could feel them with his tongue. And instantly he knew that there was hope. And over the next 65 years of his life spent in darkness, William McPherson read through the Bible, the entire Bible, four times with just his tongue. 
I suppose he did take the words of uh, Joshua chapter 1, verse 8, quite literally. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. <laughs> Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Well, some might say, well, if I lost my eyesight and both hands and sensation in my lips, and uh, I'd give reading a Braille Bible with my tongue a go. What, have I have to, what do I have to lose? That's no sacrifice. I'm not sure I agree with you there, but let me tell you another story. An inspiring story of a, a young girl who was named Mary Jones. Some of you might know her story already. Mary Jones was born in a remote village in North Wales. The village was called Llanvihangel Appennant. Say it after me. No, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. That's a joke, okay. And she was born in this village in Wales in the year 1784. She attended a school in a nearby village and enjoyed reading. But in those days, there were few books around. Uh, they were very expensive anyway. The only book that was available in her village really was the Bible. Her parents were far too poor to own a Bible, but she knew a certain Mrs. Evans, one of her neighbours, and she went round to her house on a Saturday afternoon to read the Bible. She loved the Bible. She yearned for her own Bible. But the trouble was that they were 18 pence, which was more than a week's wages back then. She wasn't put off. She started knitting socks to sell, did some babysitting, weeding people's gardens, collecting bundles of firewood, selling eggs. And this young girl, Mary Jones, saved for six long years, from the age of 10 when she started saving to the age of 16. The problem was that Bibles couldn't be bought in a local shop. You know, they didn't have Amazon Prime, for example, did they, in, in those days. She'd saved enough after six years, and she heard that people ordered their Bibles from a man called the Reverend Thomas Charles, who lived in a, a town called Bala. And it was 26 miles from Mary's village. The only means of transport that she had was a horse-driven cart or to walk. She took the cheaper option, putting a shawl around her shoulders and set out to Bala. It was a long, long way on rough terrain. She only had one pair of shoes. She didn't want to ruin those, so she took them off and walked barefoot. She arrived at the home of Thomas Charles, only to be told that, she, that he had one Bible left, and that Bible had been promised to someone else. But when he heard her story, he was so impressed with her that he gave her that Bible anyway, and to others. And he said, the other folk, well, they won't be upset. We'll get them a Bible soon. Thomas Charles was so impressed with Mary's determination that he set up a society. Him and one MP that he knew, you might know this MP, his name was William Wilberforce, and they set up a society. Do you know what the society was? The Bible Society. And now that Bible Society is in 146 countries across the world. I don't know, you might have recognised by, by now that in this talk I'm not letting you, letting you off the hook very easily here. What does the Bible mean to you? What kind of sacrifice would you be prepared to make for the Scriptures? Maybe 
quite honestly, you don't really know the answer to that question. So let me ask you another one. Do you have a passion, or at least a desire, to read and study the Scriptures on your own and when you are with Christian friends? Or does that Bible gain dust on a bookshelf somewhere near home? Mary Jones walked 26 miles barefoot. Are we prepared to walk 26 feet into another room? The Bible hasn't been given to us so that we can fill our head full of knowledge and be experts on religious questions on the local quiz night. Firstly, it has been given so that we might receive salvation that comes by trusting Jesus Christ. But there's a second reason as well. And we find this in Paul's writing to his spiritual son, Timothy. Let me put the words on screen. Paul writes, all scripture is inspired by God. Those words inspired by God in the Greek is theonoustos, which means God breathes. All scripture is God breathed and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. In other words, it's there to sort us out. To reveal what is wrong in our lives, to expose the rubbish in our lives, to uncover the stuff which is not very Christ-like. And it prepares and equips us to be men and women of God in this world. Now, the human authors of Scripture often spoke of how they cherished the revelation of God to them. Obviously, they didn't have uh, God's re revelation in uh, uh, leather-backed pages as we have it in our homes. But let me just quote some of the uh, things that, the, for example, the psalmist said. Psalm 119, verse 103. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. A couple of verses further on. Your word is a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. A few verses further on again. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. So there are two questions. That's all I have for you today is two questions. The first question is, do I have a passion for reading and studying the Bible? And now the second question is, do I have a passion to make that Bible accessible to others? Now, if Tyndale's uh, legacy was to enable us to read the Bible in our own language and it cost him so much, how passionate are we to make the scriptures and to make Christian teaching available and accessible to others around us. Tim, would you come and join me for a couple of minutes, please? Okay, put this mic on, please. Thanks. Tim, I know that you're uh, passionate uh, about this subject this morning and you belong to an organization which is called Gideon's. Yes. And uh, Gideon's take Bibles uh, into schools and hotels and hospitals and so forth. Why do you do this? Um, well, it started for me uh, when I got baptised, and it was a long time ago, and uh, there was a scripture, John 15, 16, that said, God saying, I believe directly to me, but to all of us, I promised all of us, uh, so I did not choose you, you chose me, 
and appointed, oh, sorry, you did not choose me, I chose you and appointed you to bear fruit, fruit that would last, that anything you ask in my name, I will give to you. But the key is to love people. So from that scripture, I took it that I needed to be involved in this fruit, fruit that would last. So there was sowing seed and there was gathering in the harvest. So that happened very early in my Christian life. And a bit later, through miraculous circumstances, I met some Gideons. And they said their job was very simple. They go out into what they call the highways and byways of life and give scriptures out. Because scriptures are the real key to getting people to understand who God is and what he has for mankind. Lovely. So how would you say that the Bible has changed your life? Oh, uh, well, I'm sure any Christian can give you loads and loads of examples how <coughs> Scripture has changed my life. But um, really, I think it is that the Bible is like a manual. I say when I go to speak to, to children at school, the Bible is like a manual. So when you get a computer, a manual comes with it. Now, many people don't read manuals or IKEA instructions, but the truth is, with the Scripture, as that Scripture in Timothy said, it's for every purpose of our life. And the scripture was written thousands of years ago by many different people inspired by God. So it's a manual for your life. And I've been inspired countless times by reading different scriptures, asking the Holy Spirit to speak to me and give me understanding. I'm not an educated man. And I, I, you know, I really struggle with reading, to be fair. But I've made it a life's quest to understand more about scripture. Firstly, so it'll affect my life and bring benefit to my life. But secondly, so I can use it as a sword that scripture talks about to go and challenge other people to get them to know God and to get them to understand what God is saying to them. Brilliant, thank you ever so much. Uh, a, couple, a couple of days ago when we were talking about this, you told me a couple of stories. Mm. Do, you, do you want to share those of uh, the ways that uh, the Gideons in sharing the, the, the scriptures, yep. there were some quite remarkable yeah. happenings. <laughs> yeah. One of the things I love okay. about the Gideon ministry is that um, no man can <laughs> pay any credit. So we simply are the hands and feet. We put the scriptures into places that people are and then God gets all the credit and all the glory. Um, I'm not keen on man taking the credit for God. So, the first story is a most incredible story about a guy who's in his early 30s. And we get lots of people right into Gideon's head office and tell us these stories. This is a guy called Matthew. And he's on a trip down to London um, for very um, uh, terrible purposes, actually. Many people go to, to hotel rooms to commit suicide. Life has become so bad that they get to that point, but they don't want to embarrass their family, they want to try and take it away from the family situation. So Matthew is on his way down to London and his plan is to jump off at one of the bridges, I think it's London Bridge, and to commit suicide. He books into the hotel, <coughs> so he's in the hotel, has a long night ahead of him, he's not going to do it until the morning for some reason. Um, as he's wandering around the room, pacing up and down, contemplating his life, he's in deep depression, he's got financial problems, he's lost his job, and there's some other family stuff which I want to share. But he's in a desperate, desperate place. He opens the drawer, and there is the Gideon Bible. And his first response was, I don't believe there is a God. I'm not going to touch that. But through the hours of the night, while pacing the room, he came to a point where he did open the scripture. And he read a few scriptures, and God was speaking to him. He started to feel loved. And that was a real problem. He was missing the love in his life. But then the most amazing, incredible thing happened. He'd read a few scriptures. He was starting to feel better, but he was still intent on killing himself. He then flicks to the front of the scripture, and in there, uh, I'll do this. <laughs> in there was a short note written by another man who 10 years ago had been in that same hotel room and had read that scripture, and it turned out to be his dad. So, 
what's the chances? You know, God could be, the word of God is so powerful that he can speak through the word to, to God. But when God had gone the extra step and had made this young man and this young guy understand that his father had been in the same position, so he read that, obviously, and he went back home and his life changed around. He became a Christian and had such an impact on his life that God had gone the extra length to show him that he wasn't the only one. His father was in the same position. He never knew that. Um, so that's an incredible, incredible story. Just one example of how uh, God can speak through Scripture. <coughs> On to the next one. I've got myself together now. Please, you put a picture up, please. <coughs> uh, it's not a very good picture, but this is a few years ago. I got sent by the Gideons to go to Colombia. It was a very exciting trip. And um, it's a Catholic-based country. And I found the real problem was that nobody ever told them people that they can have a personal one-to-one relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. So I'm in the taxi on the first day with an American Gideon, and we know Americans, they're very brash. We're driving a hundred yeah. yards down the road, and he said to the taxi driver, do you know where you go when you die? I sit down in the seat, and, oh my gosh, I can't believe you asked that question. And the guy said, no I don't. And I've often wondered about that. He said, could we read some scripture to you? Stop the car, there and then, Bogota, read some scripture to him, um, his name is Carlos, and instantly the Holy Spirit spoke to him, and he was ready to accept the Lord Jesus Christ as personal Savior. So we prayed with him. Great, nearly. That's a finish. And, and that's him signing the Gideon Bible. Is a place to sign where, when you made a, a commitment to God, and um, we we give them lots of stuff about you must go and find it at the church. Uh, he signed there and then to say, and that's something to, to prove to you. That's one of many, many people that gave the heart to the Lord during that trip. The power of God through his word is just incredible. It's changed millions of lives. In the, in the last hundred years, Gideons have given out something like a billion and a half scriptures. So we de- dedicate ourselves to getting scriptures out there because it will change people's lives, just as it has in my life. Thank you. Well So some great stories there and we're living in times when the Bible is more accessible than it has ever been. Uh, not through, only through organisations like the Gideons who give away free Bibles but in uh, 2008 there was an American church called uh, Life Church who very courageously, very very brave in doing this, that they employed 20 people and got together 400 uh, volunteers and uh, made the Bible app which many of us uh, have downloaded uh, today on our phones and uh, smart devices. Uh, 11 years on from the initiation of the, the Bible app, it has been downloaded 370 million times in 1,797 Bible versions and 1,247 languages. You know, and their courage and their generosity is astounding. Many of you, Dan was speaking earlier on about the Alpha course and we've been doing lots and lots of Alpha courses over the last few years. And for those who've uh, done Alpha will know that the Alpha uh, organisation has uh, done some serious changes to the, the course over the last few years, putting together 15 brilliant uh, videos. Um, and it's all been produced by the Holy Trinity Anglican Church in Brompton, London. It's free to us, but it must have cost them millions and millions of pounds. Well, the course is now running in 100 countries, over 100 languages, and it has reached 24 million people who have attended that course. 
You see, why am I telling you all this? Well, I, I don't think there's ever been a time in the history of the world when Christians have had so many resources. Yet, I ask myself, has there ever been a time when there has been so little desire to share the teachings of Christ with others? I'll just throw that question out there. I've challenged this week with uh, a scripture that I read from Psalm 78, verses 2 to 4. I will teach you hidden lessons from our past, stories we have heard and known, stories our ancestors handed down to us. We will not hide these truths from our children. We will tell the next generation about the glorious deeds of the Lord, about his power and his mighty wonders. Now, the psalmist there is reflecting on leaving a legacy of passing down the stories of God, the faithfulness and the might of God to other generations, to the next generation. And I know that none of us can make our children or our grandchildren Christians. If only it were that easy. It's not. I think there's a general principle that many of us know in the Old Testament, in the book of Proverbs, train a child in the way that he should go, and even when he is old, he will not depart from it. And as many of us know that that is not a guarantee, that is not a guarantee, but it is a general principle, because there are other factors involved as well, such as the child's own free will. But what this verse does say is that parents have a responsibility to teach their children what matters to God, and to demonstrate their faith in loving God and also loving others. And when I say demonstrate, I, I mean do as I do, not just as I say. And if our children don't learn from us, they will learn from the world around them. Since uh, Julie's primary school day, she has had a friend, still has a friend, called Liz. And um, Liz, her, her mother, I knew as Mrs. Williams, was uh, much older than other mums who came to fetch their children at the school gate. Uh, she had a family late. Added to this, her hair went uh, very white prematurely. And um, many of the children at the gate and their mothers thought that it was actually Liz's grandmother. Now, Mrs. Williams, a beautiful lady, had a very kindly face, a beaming smile, a lovely, lovely, godly lady, who it was my joy to, I, I got to know her quite well in her later years. And Mrs. Williams had a saying, and I hope that this encourages you, her saying. She used to say, all you have to do is introduce a child to Jesus so that when he calls, they will know his voice. I think your disease is catching. What a profound statement. All you have to do is introduce a child to Jesus so that when he calls, they will know his voice. Parents, I can see a number of parents here, of children, young children this morning. You have a wonderful and awesome responsibility to train your children in the ways of God. Primarily, primarily, this is not the responsibility of this church. 
despite the fantastic children's work that we have here and the fantastic youth work that we have here. And they really are exceptional. Predominantly, it is your responsibility and it is your calling before God. We will come alongside you. We're glad to do so. We will help and encourage and inspire and teach your children with you and support you. But we cannot, cannot do it for you. So can I ask you, do you pray with your children? Do you read the scriptures with them? Do you talk about your faith in Christ? Do you encourage them to follow you as you follow Christ? Do you encourage your children to come midweek and on Sundays to the brilliant, brilliant, brilliant things that we are hosting as a church for your kids? This is designed for them. Time has gone. Two questions. Let me put them back up on screen for you. Do I have a passion for reading and studying the Bible? And do I have a passion to make the Bible accessible to others? I'll leave you reflect on that. But let me finish with some rather poignant words that I came across this week. From an unknown writer. And as I read these guys, if you'd like to come back. It says this, The Bible contains the mind of God, the state of man, the way of salvation, the love of Christ and the joy of believers. Its doctrines are holy, its instructions are life-giving, its histories are true, and its decisions are indisputable. Read it to be wise, believe it to be safe, practice it to be holy. It contains light to direct you, food to support you, and comfort to cheer you. It is the traveller's map, the pilgrim's staff, the pilot's compass, the soldier's sword and the Christian's character. Here paradise is restored, heaven opened, and the grace of God revealed. Christ is its grand subject, our good is its purpose, and the glory of God its highest objective. It should fill the memory, rule the heart, guide the feet. Read it slowly, frequently, prayerfully. It is a mine of wealth, a paradise of glory, and a river of pleasure. Follow its teachings and it will lead you to Calvary, to the empty tomb, to a resurrected life in Christ and to glory itself for all of eternity. Would you stand please? Would you pray with me? Dear Lord, dear Lord, we thank you for men like William Tyndale and others who have left us such a legacy which has made us so rich, not in material terms, but in spiritual terms. And we thank you, Lord, that we have possession of the scriptures that reveal you to be the way, the truth, and the life and have made us wise to salvation. And I pray, Lord, that we might have the passion for this amazing gift, that we should read it and study it and memorize it and obey it and choose to live by it. And also that we might be passionate in making this great gift accessible to others, that they might encounter the one whose name is above every name. 
Amen.